Okay, if you would, turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. If you have a hard time finding the book of Nehemiah, it's uh, right after Ezra. I'm sure that uh, many of you know exactly where that is. And uh, if you still can't find it, look in the beginning there, and they'll tell you a page number in your particular uh, Bible. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you experienced holy discontent? Holy discontent. You say, well, what do you mean by holy discontent? I'm not familiar with that terminology. Well, uh, when was the last time you were moved to action because you were disillusioned or broken by the status quo? By a life or a lifestyle that's not consistent with who you are as a Christ follower? Oh, and Pastor Joe Wright was asked to open the new session of the Kansas House of Representatives on January 24th, 1996. Everyone was expecting the usual generalities, the usual placating prayer that is so often offered up in those particular circumstances, but they heard something quite different. Let me read you his prayer. He prayed this, Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that's exactly what we have done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that. We've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it moral pluralism. We've worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Try us and see if there be some wicked way in us. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who've been sent here by the people of this state and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state of Kansas. Grant them your wisdom to rule and may their decisions direct us to the center of your will. I ask in the name of your Son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. How about that? You might be surprised to know if you're not familiar with that story. It's a true story that many of those uh, representatives in the state of Kansas walked out that day and they were offended at that particular prayer. I would say to you that this was a man who had holy discontent. He got to the point in his life where he was disillusioned by the status quo and what our society said was acceptable. And so he decided to take an opportunity to do something about that. That's called holy discontent. In our study in Nehemiah, God was about to do something big for his people, but it wouldn't happen without prayer. It would not happen without confession, without a simple acknowledgement of sin. And that's where we pick up our story as we left off in Nehemiah chapter 1a uh, last week. We're going to start at b. 
and we're going to make it farther than C. Trust me. So let's pick up our study there. It said, now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. The month Chislev is, corresponds to our uh, late November or early December. The year that's in view here is the 20th year of, Artis- of King Artaxerxes' reign. And Susa was the winter capital. It was the winter resort, basically, of Artaxerxes. It wasn't just simply an apartment where he stayed. It was literally like a resort where he resided during the winter months. Uh, Politicians haven't changed a whole lot, have they, now that I think of that? And as we learned last week, Nehemiah was in a really good place. He was the cupbearer to the king, which was a very important position that brought with it many perks, no doubt. He wasn't just simply somebody that brought the king his food, but, you know, he, he tasted the food to make sure that it had not been poisoned. He tasted the wine before the king drank of the wine. And it was a very important and very trusted position. And Nehemiah, as a Jew in a Gentile nation, had, had earned that uh, position and had climbed up to that position. Uh, even at that particular time, uh, to live in the king's palace was to live in luxury. And for Nehemiah, seemingly, he didn't have a care in the world. But that was all about to change. You ever have one of those days where everything is going on just fine, everything's normal, everything's good, and then something happens that changes everything? You've had those things happen? That, if you can get that into your mind, that's exactly what is happening here in our text today. Nehemiah had to have woken up this particular morning going, man, isn't life good? It's awesome. I mean, I get to eat of the, off the king's table. He trusts me. I've got an important position. Everything is good. I mean, here I am in Susa. I'm living in luxury. This is awesome. This is good. But everything was about to change with a visit from his brother and a few other men. Look at verse 2. It says, as he was there in Susa the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Now, Hanani, most Bible scholars agree, seems to have been Nehemiah's blood brother. And the escape that he has in view here was actually uh, when uh, the, the Jews were taken from uh, Judea, Uh, back to captivity in Babylon, and now they've gone back, and even though they've received permission to do that, Nehemiah seems to have regarded their departure from Babylon as an escape since the Babylonians had originally forced them into exile against their will. They weren't just simply uh, living there in Babylon out of their own choice. They had been forced there, and so he refers to it as an escape as they had gone back to Jerusalem. Verse 3 said, They said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and approach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Here's something you need to understand about leadership and about the kind of leader I believe that God uses. First of all, he cared enough to listen. He cared enough to listen. The news that Nehemiah uh, received evidently informed him of the Jews' unsuccessful attempts to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Evidently, uh, Nehemiah had a, at least an understanding or had assumed that the walls were well on their way to being built, if not totally rebuilt. But the bad state of the people and the bad state of the city walls were intimately connected. In the ancient world, and I think I mentioned this to you last week, for a city not to have walls 
was a city that was completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. It was a very, uh, 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 very scary situation to be in. They had no defense. They had no protection at all. In fact, an unwalled city was always a backwater town. It was a town that uh, obviously had nothing valuable in it because it wasn't uh, protected. And it could easily, anything that was there could be stolen away because there was no defense at all to stop it. Those living in an unwalled city were constantly in a state of stress and tension. I mentioned to you last week, it'd be like living in your house without any doors and windows. Not only would it be cold on certain nights, but you would be very vulnerable. And that was the case of these cities that did not have walls. And so the temple had been rebuilt, but it was unprotected. And anything that was of value in the city could be easily taken. I'm amazed here that Nehemiah even cared enough to listen. And I think he did so because he had a caring heart. You know, when we care enough about people, or when we care about people, we should care enough to actually listen to their story, no matter how painful that might be. Uh, Take that as a lesson. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but take that as a lesson, that if you really love and you really care about people, that you will listen to their story. No matter how tragic it is, no matter how heartbreaking it might be for you, you will take the time to listen to their story. I hope you have people in your life that are like that, that are good listeners. I I am uh, pretty open and pretty vulnerable with you, right? Now, I'll tell you straight up that I'm not the best listener in the world. Uh, I think I'm a pretty good talker, but I'm not the best listener. I have to work at listening because I know that that's what people who who lead people who really love and care about people, that's what God wants us to do. God wants us to be listeners. If you're one of those people that is a good listener, like my wife, for example, she's a great listener. She listens, and she listens intently. Uh, My friend, Keen Kulak, who's one of our elders, Keen is a great listener. I can remember very early on in my relationship with Keen, in fact, I, I kind of behind his back, not, not with anybody else, but kind of made fun of him because it always looked like he was so intently interested in what I was saying. And I'm going, there's no way that this guy can possibly be as interested as he seems. And then as I've known him over the last 14 years, I recognize that, no, he really does care. He cares enough to listen. Let me tell you one of the greatest things that you can do this morning if you want to demonstrate true love to a person in this body, a person that's visiting here today, is to take the time to listen to them. So many of us miss incredible opportunities for ministry because we are not willing to simply listen. And Nehemiah, the first trait that we see of his leadership is that he is a good listener. He cares enough to ask the right questions, and then when the questions are being answered, he listens to those answers. And look at verse 4. You'll see his response. Verse 4 says, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The second thing that a godly person, and certainly that a godly leader does, is that they care enough sometimes to cry. They care enough to be vulnerable in that way where there is emotion. What made him so sad, I ask myself, that made him mourn and, and, and cry and pray for, for days? This, resp- this report was obviously devastating news for Nehemiah because, as I said earlier, it appeared that he was under the impression that things were okay in Jerusalem. He must have thought that the walls had been rebuilt, that the temple had been rebuilt, and under Ezra's leadership, great things were happening in Jerusalem. He probably thought the city was full and secure and it was flourishing again. 
What would you have done if you would have heard that news? Remember, he's about 800 miles away. He's in the lap of luxury. He's worked for this incredible position as the cupbearer to the king. And now he gets this news that kind of rocks his world a little bit and is kind of going to take him out of his comfort zone. What would you have done? As I was studying this week, I wrote down a couple of things that might be typical responses. In fact, I have to tell you that I thought maybe this is what I would have done. And I don't like to admit that. You know, sometimes you you see Bible characters do bad things and you go, I'd have never done that. Other times you see see them do good things and you go, unfortunately, I'd have never done that either. All right? What would you have done if your brother and these men had come to you and said, Nehemiah, you need to know this. The walls are still in disarray. We're very vulnerable. Our city is open to this savage world out here. And people are in disarray. I might have said this. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. Could we have a word of prayer? Could we have a word of prayer? Yeah, let's just gather around. Let's kind of all join hands and let's pray. Let's just pray. I'll pray for you and I'll pray for the people. And that would have sounded really spiritual, right? They might have walked away going, wow, to have the great Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, actually pray for us. That's incredible. Or maybe he could have justified the problem. He could have said, it's not my problem that my ancestors disobeyed God. You know, a century before that, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah, 15, Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 5, he wrote this. I've never put this together before, but Jeremiah said this. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask you how you're doing? <laughs> if I'm Nehemiah and I have knowledge of Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 5, I go, look, hey, if Jeremiah is saying, why would I care? Why would I care? It's not my fault. And I would have justified my response. Some people, in fact, some of us, prefer not to know what's going on in a particular situation. You ever find yourself in that, in that, in that kind of situation where you just don't really want to know what's going on? Information can bring a sense of obligation, and so therefore you prefer just to simply be ignorant of something? And we use the adage, well, what you don't know, what? Can't hurt you. But I wonder if that's actually true. One man said this, facts do not cease to exist because they are ignored. In other words, closing our eyes and ears to the truth could be the first step to tragedy, not only for ourselves, but other people as well. So Nehemiah cared enough to cry and to weep with these people. He didn't just simply say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. Or, well, hey, you're getting what you deserve. After all, it's not my fault. I didn't make those decisions. Look at the date there in chapter 1 that we just talked about, and then look at the date that begins in chapter 2. And you'll notice that Nehemiah prayed and he fasted. If you compare those two months and those two periods of time, he, he prayed and fasted for about four months. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you cried over the broken condition of our culture, the lives of your neighbors, the devastating circumstances in the life of a friend? When was the last time you were actually moved emotionally? Maybe you were moved to the point of tears because you cared so much for a particular situation. I can't even imagine probably doing that for four hours, right? If it wasn't about me, and it wasn't about my family and those people that are closest to me, I can't even imagine doing it for four hours. But Nehemiah was so broken that he mourned for four months. 
Important principle for you to understand is this. God will do a work in you before he does anything through you. Write that down. That's pretty good, even if I do say so myself. You should write that down. That's good. God will do a work in you before he does anything through you. It would be good for some of us who are leaders in churches to understand that quite well. And I have to tell you, I continually am learning this particular principle as a leader. God will not do anything through me or through you in your life until he does a work inside of you. See, we live in a culture which is so backwards with regards to that, don't we? We want God to use us. We want God to do something really great uh, uh, through us with our influence, whether that's in our workplace, whether that's in our neighborhood, maybe our church, whatever. We want God to do something really, really big. But I think so many times God sits back and he says, before I'm going to do anything through you, I've got to do a work in you. And that begins when we care enough sometimes to cry over the broken conditions of our life, the broken condition of our culture, the broken lives of our neighbors, and the devastating consequences of those people that are around us. And so Nehemiah began to pray in verse 5. He said, I beseech you, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. The next mark of a godly person, certainly of a godly leader, is that he cared enough to pray. He actually cared enough to pray. The man or woman that is able to see God do great things in and through their life is fully aware of their needs and humbles themselves before the one who alone is able to do awesome things. And that obviously is God. Cyril Barber, I'm sure you've never heard of him, but he wrote a book about Nehemiah, and he made these observations about those of us who pray. Number one, three observations. Number one, the self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. Why? Because they are self-sufficient. They are the answer to the problem. They're self-sufficient. They don't pray. They merely talk to themselves. Number two, the self-satisfied will not pray because they have no knowledge of their need. (laughs) What do I need? I'm good. They look in the mirror and they don't see what the rest of us see when we look at them. They're self-satisfied. Everything is good. I have no knowledge of my need. And then number three, the self-righteous cannot pray because they have no basis on which to approach God. They see themselves as an equal with God. They're self-righteous. They're righteous in and of themselves. And therefore, they don't need God. Well, those things don't describe Nehemiah at all. He cared enough to pray. He knew that if the seemingly impossible was going to happen, and remember, for decades, these walls had tried to be rebuilt. In fact, Nehemiah thought they'd already been rebuilt, and it would not happen. He knew if it was going to happen, if the seemingly impossible was to happen, it would begin with prayer. And so he goes on, he says, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. I love this because as a leader, Nehemiah recognizes his solidarity with his people. I love that. 
He's one with the people. He doesn't try to distance himself from their disobedient conduct. He's very much aware of his own sin. And oh, if God would work in the hearts of leaders to do just this, to identify, to have solidarity with their people. Notice he says, we, I, my, we. That's the kind of leader that God uses. One who is fully aware of his own sinfulness and of his own depravity. I want to confess to you this morning that it's easy as a pastor to slip into a mindset of simply being a corrector of sin rather than seeing myself as a sinner. It's very easy to do that. Now, I'm well aware of the biblical qualifications for an elder that are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Elders are to be above reproach, and that means that we're to be good examples. We're to live the life that we're teaching others to live to live a life that gives credibility to the message that I preached to you this morning. But I want to remind you that those qualifications do not set us as elders apart as if we've attained perfection in our walk with Jesus. It would do well, again, for some leaders to understand these principles. I want you to know, and I want you to know it right from my mouth, so that when you see me sin, you'll understand this, that we struggle just as you struggle. Yes, we're to be examples to follow, but sometimes the example that you're to follow in my leadership and in the leadership of our other elders is you're to see an example of what confession really looks like. I've shared this story with you, and I'm not proud of it, but I share it because it's a good example of this particular principle. Uh, I find myself continually needing to do this. You know, I spent 20 years as a youth pastor, and With kids, sometimes you can just make them think that you're something that you're not. Adults have a tendency after a while to figure out who you really are, right? I mean, we just figure that out. And so I've learned very early on after 20 years in youth ministry and now a few years as we've planted Northwest that it's much better just to help people understand this particular principle that that we as leaders recognize that, that we're sinners, that while we're to be above reproach, that sometimes we stumble, sometimes we fall. I take great comfort from Romans chapter 7 where Paul said, the the good that I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things I know I shouldn't do, uh, I find myself doing. And then the conclusion he comes to is, oh, wretched man that I am. And I remember last softball season, I did that on one particular occasion in a game where I showed my carnality. I was upset. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've got a type A temperament, and I did not want to lose a game, and we were losing a game, and there was a particular man that I thought was responsible for us losing the game, and I made sure that he knew that I thought he was the reason. And we laugh about it now. He and I laugh about it, but there really wasn't anything funny about it at the time. We were both very serious. We were both very angry. I got to the point where I was so upset that I decided to take myself out of the game and pout on the bench. Say, I'm not coming back here next week. I wouldn't either. <laughs> I'm just telling you. And right away, the Spirit of God began to go, that's leadership. You talk to these men about what it means to be a godly man, what it means to lead, that's leadership. And I had this argument going on, you know. Yeah, it is. He deserved it. You know, that is leadership. Somebody needed to say it. God chose me to say it. This is, this is how this is going on. And every time it was like, you know that's not right. You know that's wrong. And I'd see this guy in the field and I'd look at him and go, I love him. I care about him. How could I have done that? So by the end of the game, I'm feeling like about that tall. And I knew what I had to do. 
And I hated it because I don't like to admit that I'm wrong. And I had to gather those men and ask for their forgiveness, hoping that half of them wouldn't leave and never come back because they had saw my little outburst. But, but I will say to you that if you stick around here long enough, you're going to see me behave in a way that is not consistent with who God wants me to be. And you're going to see others of our leaders behave inconsistent with who they are as Christ followers. Let our examples in those moments be the example of what true confession looks like. What it means to humble ourselves and pray. You see, Nehemiah gets it. He understands a very simple yet often forgotten biblical principle, and that's found in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I ignore, that word ignore means to cherish or or defend my sin in my life, God will not hear me. He also understood, fortunately, the principle that's found in 1 John 1 and verse 9, which is what? If we confess our sin, he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us of our sin, and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's so easy in relationships to play the blame the other person game. I'm guilty of that. Probably not many of you are, but I am. Since they did this, or if they would do this, I want to encourage you that as you go before the Lord in those times of of conflicts, I want to encourage you to focus on you. To focus on you. Lord, I bring before you the areas in which I have sinned. The areas in which I have caused irritation. I can't change them. But I can, with the help of God, with the help of the Spirit of God, working in my life, I can change me. I will tell you this. This is free of charge. costs you nothing extra. It just comes with the sermon this morning. I will tell you this, that if you begin to behave that way in your life, in your marriage relationships, in your relationship with your kids, in the conflicts that you have in the workplace, in your neighborhood with your neighbors, if you begin to operate in that way, you will see God transform not only you, but your relationships as well. Where you own and you take responsibility for your actions rather than blaming somebody else for the choices that you have decided to make. I challenge you to be that kind of person. God, change me. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He cared enough to pray. Look at verse 8. He says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I'll gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Now, this is not an exact uh, quotation from any particular passage of Scripture, but it does express the great covenant principle, which we find in the book of Nehemiah in chapters 28 and 30 and also in Leviticus uh, 26. The covenant, if you remember, that God had made with with his people had two sides. It had blessing and it had judgment. Very simple. I have these covenants in my home with my kids, right? You got it in in your home. There's a blessing covenant and there's a judgment covenant. All right? If they obeyed God, he would bless them. That's why we say on a regular basis around here that obedience brings what? Blessing. Obedience brings blessing. You obey God's word, you do what he's told you to do in the way that he's told you to do it, and obedience brings blessing. Does it happen today? Well, if it did, 
it'd be a very easy principle for me to teach you. If you just got the idea that if I simply obey God, boy, good stuff's going to happen. Who wouldn't obey? You'd obey, right? And sometimes that blessing doesn't come for months, doesn't come for years. Middle school, high school students, let me tell you that that's one of the greatest lies that Satan will tell you. I don't do that, man. It's too much of a cost to pay and, because you don't see that blessing immediately. But if you will honor God in your life right now, you will see God's blessing in your life. Many of us could testify to that. You might not see it today like you want to see it. <laughs> you might not see it tomorrow, but obedience always brings blessing. But the flip side of that is also true. The second part of the covenant was that if they disobeyed God, that he would judge them and he would scatter them all around. This, no doubt, is the secret to great power in prayer, to plead the promises of God. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's basically saying, uh, we may be a bit annoyed uh, at what is happening, God, but, but here's what you said. Let me remind you of what he said. Now, it's important for you to understand that God's not forgotten. So that God comes down and goes, oh, Nehemiah, you know, I totally forgot that. I forgot that agreement that I made. He hasn't forgotten at all. Nehemiah is just saying, hey, I'm claiming that. Now would be a good time, since I know you're a God who, who is going to do what you've said you're going to do. Now would be a good time to do that. It's kind of like dads, you're, you're familiar with this, and probably moms are too, where you have your kids come up to us, especially when they're little, although mine have not figured out that it's only supposed to be something you're supposed to do when you're little. And they go, but daddy, you promised. Anybody ever have that happen? I learned as a young father, and those of you that are young fathers, you know, as you sit there with your babies or thinking about having babies, learn this early on. Don't make promises. <laughs> Just don't do it, all right? If you don't make promises, they can never come back to you and say, but Daddy, you promised. My kids remember every promise that I've ever made. Even if it was in one of those moments where you just said, I'm just going to say this and hopefully they'll forget it and it'll never, you dads have done that. Some of you are shaking your heads going, yeah, I've done that before. But they never, ever forget. Daddy, you promised. You said if we'd do this or if we went here, we'd get this or we'd go here and we'd do that. And sometimes it's easy for us to be annoyed, but our Heavenly Father, I'm convinced of this, this passage certainly teaches it, He delights in that. And so as Nehemiah says, Yahweh, you promised. You said that you would do this, and now would be a good time to do it. Verse 10 says, They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. It has been well said that prayer is not getting man's will done on earth, but getting God's will done on earth. And he uses people to accomplish his will on earth. I like this particular part because Nehemiah assumed that he was the answer to his own prayer. Not that it was someone else whom God was going to give this assignment to. He was asking God to prepare the way for him to actually be the answer to his prayer. Prepare the way for me to be able to actually go and talk to this king that I work for, to King Artaxerxes. He was going to have to sacrifice a lot. He was going to have to sacrifice the comforts of the palace for the ruins of Jerusalem. He was going to have to give up the prestige of his position in Persia for the task of encouraging and challenging a group of beaten down, seemingly useless people 
who were going to accomplish something that had seemed impossible for decades. Last principle of godly people, those that God will use in leadership is this, that he cared enough to go. He cared enough to go. So many times we pray things like this. I've been guilty of this. God, please provide this need for this person or for this family. Guess what? Maybe you're the answer to that need. Maybe God wants you to write a check. Maybe God doesn't need you to hear the prayer that somehow he would provide somebody else to do that. Maybe you're the answer to that prayer. Or we pray something like this. God, give them strength in this difficult time. Give them strength. Send somebody to encourage them. Guess what? Maybe God wants you to be that encouragement. Maybe he wants you to turn off your TV set and to get in your car and for you to drive across town. And he wants you to provide a meal for that that, that family. He wants you to provide care and comfort and concern during a difficult time in their life. Maybe you are the answer to your prayer. Or God, please let me see blank, fill in their name, come into a relationship with Jesus. God, send along somebody to share the good news of the gospel with them. I hope they'll be able to come to church here with me sometime, and Brian will clearly articulate the gospel, and and they'll come to know Jesus as their Savior. And maybe God's saying, you're the answer. You have the relationship. You sit down and share the good news of the gospel with them. Maybe you find yourself looking in the bulletin from Sunday to Sunday, and and you, you always go down to that bottom line of the offerings. And you go, well, we're down a little bit. God, please provide, you know, lay it on the hearts of those rich people, those people that I see their cars, I see what they drive in the parking lot. I pray that somehow you'd provide for the needs of this church. Guess what? Maybe you are the answer to that need. Maybe you need to get your checkbook out. Maybe you need to write the check. Maybe you are the answer to so many of your prayers that you pray, assuming God is going to use somebody else. And maybe he's simply saying, I want to use you. Nehemiah was willing to go, and I'm convinced that many times we are those answers to prayer, to prayer, to our own prayers. We simply need to be willing to be used by God, but prayer is essential if we're going to see God do great things in our lives and through our lives. What a perfect setup for a guy who prays for four months for this great task that he obviously believes God's calling him to do, In chapter 2, we're going to get there. We're going to get right into the throne room where he's right in front of King Artaxerxes and we find out how God answers this prayer. But as we close this morning, here's the big idea. If your vision is so big that only God can accomplish it, then you obviously must pray. If your vision for what you want to see God do is so big that it's impossible for it to be accomplished unless God does it, then you're going to pray. If prayer isn't absolutely necessary to accomplish your vision, then your goal isn't big enough. You need to change your goals. You need to change your outlook. You need to expand your perspective a little bit. Widen your horizons just a little bit. And I will say to you that we are committed as a leadership team for that to be the mark of our ministry. I don't want God to do anything here that any any one of us, any one of us, leaders and uh, the ordinary person sitting in the chair this morning, that we can take credit for it. I like to see God do things where you go, only God could have done that. We've talked about it over the years as those but God things that you just say, well, what's the story there? 
reminds me of several years ago, I was taking a group of kids on a mission trip. And uh, we got to the airport, and our flight had been canceled. And as a result of that, we were going to have to be rerouted. And they finally did spring break, and they decided to bring in another plane, which got us to Atlanta. But it meant we were still going to miss a connection in Europe. And if we missed that connection, our whole itinerary would be messed up for the whole week. And as a result of a little bit of negotiation, which I've been known to be able to accomplish sometimes, as a result of a little bit of negotiation, a few minutes later, the Delta agent handed me 16 first-class tickets to Europe. 16 of them. We got in there to first-class. I mean, I've, I've sat in business class. I've sat in some first-class cabins, but nothing like this. It was unbelievable. And I will never forget walking on the plane that day. Uh, I think uh, four adults and 12 high school students and as we walked, and you know when you enter in that plane, I'm going to Africa this week, and I know which way I'm going to have to go. I go to the right, right? That's the cattle car. That's where everybody's kind of sitting like this, you know, and the guy in, in back of you has got his arms up over you like that, and this guy's kind of leaning on you, and that, that, that's going to happen. And so the, the flight attendant immediately said, you know, go to the right, and I'm going, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Look at this. And he looked at me, and I said, yeah, it's all of us. He goes, he said, you're going to have to tell me this story. 16 out of 20 seats were occupied by 12 high school students and four poor youth ministry leaders. I tell you that to tell you this. That's a but God thing. Only God can do that. It's a funny way of saying that that is the way we ought to live our lives. That is the way that we ought to look at the ministry of this church, that we want God to do something that people go, i got to hear this story. If our vision is so small that no prayer is required, count me out. I'm not interested. I want our vision for what we want to see God do in this community and around the globe to be so big that when God does something so miraculous, so spectacular, that people just go, tell me that story. I want to hear that story. And that's exactly the way that Nehemiah is praying here. He's praying, God, I want you to do something really big. Something that everybody thinks is impossible. I want you to do that. And by the way, I'm willing to be an answer to my prayer. And you're going to see as we get into chapter 2 now and as we start on our journey of rebuilding those walls, that's exactly what God will do. God will take that great big vision, that great big dream, and he will do something spectacular in the lives of those people because of a leader that cared. I trust we'll be that kind of people. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, this book that was written so very long ago and yet is so practical, even to my life this week. God, you know my heart. I want to be that kind of a leader. I want the other men on our our leadership team to be that kind of men. I want to listen to people. I don't want to just ask how they're doing and then tone out. I want to listen to people. God, as they tell me their story, I want to be broken. And when necessary and when appropriate, I want to mourn for them. God, I and our leadership team and each person in this church, I want us to be people who pray. Because we believe that you are a God who delights in doing those things that seem impossible to us. God, I want to be keenly aware that sometimes I'm the answer to my own prayer. That sometimes it means I care enough to go myself. 
God, I pray that you would make that true of my life, of our leadership team, but down to the youngest person here who can comprehend this message who's part of Northwest. We want to be that kind of a place. And God, we want to tell stories because people say, but God, God had to have done something incredible here. We want you to work in, that, in this place in that way. We want our vision to be that big about how you're going to use us to make a difference, not for our fame, not for our glory, but for the glory of the God of the universe, in whose name we pray.